This is talk three, Honoring the Ancestors session, 2015. Breathing the breath of our ancestors. So no matter what's said in this talk, continue with the exact same practice that you have right now. All practice embodies the truth. And by continuously looking into and resting in being, by being submerged repeatedly in the specific practice that you are doing, different levels of truth are revealed, unfolded. Dan Brown, who's been here, going to mentor, he, said, he speaks of intensifying at this point. And by intensifying, he means not making a greater straining effort, but by looking more closely, as though you were in an art gallery and you decide to look more intensely at a picture and you walk up closer to it so you can see the brush strokes, so you can see the, the texture. Or as though you were putting your hand in a box of sand trying to feel around for some hidden treasure in there. So being intimate, being completely submerged, wholly engaged in the breath, is the practice and doing it in your, the way, particular way that you were doing it. The issue that obstructs us is faith. If we were to say, let's take a glass of water, we fill it up and we put it on our left side, and then two minutes later we put it on our right side, and two minutes later we put it on our left side, and two minutes later we put it on our right side, and two minutes later we put it on our left side, and two minutes later we put it on our right side, and we do that all day long, and we say, this is the practice. I think we would get pretty um, discouraged, or we'd think, what's the point? We'd say, this is useless, this is meaningless. Just back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And of course, in a way, as an object, it is. As an object, just taking a cup of water, glass of water, vessel of water, and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, doesn't have a whole lot of juice to it. But when we become curious about the nature of the mind, curious about the inner impulse to raise the arm, curious about what is it that's aware of glass in the first place? What is it that sees? What is it that breathes? What is it that feels the engagement? We watch something, the impulse to move the glass, arise from nowhere. And we get really curious in that nowhere. We see actual emptiness of the moment itself, it can become an intriguing investigation. The breath is the same way. If it's an object, it's helpful in the beginning, of course. It's very helpful to have concentration with an object to help anchor the mind, helps to stabilize the mind. The Buddha recommended it as the number one way to calm and stabilize attention, bring it in the present moment. And the breath has no story. So, of course, we come to a session, we come to a retreat, we come to our life filled with stories of success and failure, of good and bad. Things were going well and they weren't going well. So we 
begin looking at the breath as an object, as a way of stabilizing the mind in the storylessness of the object. But that is not the end of practice. So we have to actually take it by becoming more intimate, by looking more intently, more closely, by feeling it. We have to look down below our stories about ourselves. We have to have faith that the very life energy that gives rise to this breath, the very life energy that is coursing through our awareness right now, that investigation of that very life energy is where liberation is revealed. The Zen lineage, the Zen Buddhist lineage, is one of faith and practice and teaching. And it's of faith and practice and teaching looking intimately at this stream of life energy that flows through each person generation after generation, looking intimately and feeling what is most alive. Chosen as the 82nd generation of teachers from the time of Shakyamuni Buddha. And those 82 generations, 82 lives of people, and all those 82 people went through all sorts of interesting things in their lifetime. They went through many challenges, many practices, many teachers, many situations, many circumstances. All of them were supported by food and shelter and clothing in one way or another. And it really is impossible to know what actually went into the, um, the growing, the cultivation of those 82 individuals, much less the network of people around them, supporting, sustaining, learning, teaching. If we think how we would sum up our lives for our great-grandchildren or for people two or three generations down from us, how would we summarize them? A few sentences, maybe just a job, a few lines from our teaching, our obituary. How many of us have read the obituary of our great-great-grandparents, our great-grandparents, even our grandparents sometimes? So what comes down to us the further back we go in this lineage becomes more and more uh, an impression, more and more an archetypal theme. The archetypal theme that runs through 82 generations and all of the disciples of those 82 generations is one of practice and investigation. In the Zen Buddhist tradition, this is symbolized by our what we call our first, the 28th ancestor in China, and the first Chinese ancestor. And it's this archetypal story of Bodhidharma is an archetypal story of deep faith, determination of patience and wisdom. So Bodhidharma is regarded as the 
archetypal ancestor, the beginning of Zen Buddhism. The first ancestor in China. And this is around 500 CE. Buddhism had been in China for several hundred years before this. And traditionally, the story is that it had become uh, rigidified, it had become doctrinaire. And the Bodhidharma brought in a fresh wave of which we are the inheritors. Traditionally, Bodhidharma's story begins as an Indian prince in South India, student of Prajnatara, whom we chant every morning. He had a deep awakening, enlightenment experience. And then he studied for 40 more years, and then he taught. And then as an old or possibly elderly or at least late middle-aged person, he got on a boat and spent months, perhaps even years, going from South India to South China. The traditional koan that everybody encounters at some point is, why did Bodhidharma come from the West? Why does anything happen? Why do we do anything? The great master Joshu responded by saying, the oak tree in the garden. Dogen Zenji asked and answered this question many, many ways. Why do we breathe? Why do we get up? Just from that little bit, we could put a whole year of talks in. But we're going to slide through that particular point right now. So let's look at the state of mind. Let's suppose this is a 50-year-old person, 60-year-old <clears throat> person, mature person, solidly embedded in his culture. And he decides to immigrate to leave a known situation, leave a country where he's at home, and go to a country where he doesn't speak the language, doesn't know the cultures, doesn't really know what he's uh, going to encounter. And we all know how immigrants are traditionally treated in a new culture. They are usually, for the most part, not welcomed after perhaps an official greeting. And they usually are very commonly relegated to very low levels of jobs, and they often are vilified. So why would a person of deep practice, why would a person with a wide awakened mind make a move like this? Somehow, looking at his own breath, just as we are, looking at his own life, looking at the life energy flowing through him, just as we are able to do right now. Something grew in him, some awareness, something mysterious. As we have talked about, when those of you who have done the heart's aspiration, I've said, said we are goal-making beings. We have to make goals. We have to have things to do in our lives. And even if we touch the timeless realm of oneness, still the manifestation of that timeless realm is our particular calling. Something arose in him. Some movement from the inside, some calling from the outside. 
Interesting. You could tell somebody. I hope we can all feel so deeply at some time in our life. I hope we all have the experience of touching something so fundamental and seeing that we need to express something important with our lives in our particular way. Bodhidharma did not come to give a series of teachings. He could have written a letter and sent it on. It would have been a lot easier. And he couldn't make a video, obviously. He had to come because of something in his own being. He had to start this journey on faith. He had to start this journey not knowing where he was going. Because I'm sure anything we knew about China and southern India in the 5th century was fairly rudimentary and mostly fantasy. So somehow he began this spiritual journey, this shift in his own being out of faith, out of something arising in him. There's a story in one of the Blue Curve Record uh, cases <clears throat> where a monk starts in a pilgrimage. And his teacher says, asks him, where will you go? The monk says, I don't know. And the teacher replies, not knowing is most intimate. Not knowing is most intimate. So we come and we practice with the breath. And we have all these ideas. I'll get this from it and this will happen. I'll have this experience. If I do it right, this I'll, I'll experience. I'll know this particular thing. If I do it right, it will feel like this. But on this pilgrimage of our own breath, on this pilgrimage that we are on right now, not knowing is most intimate. Not knowing, and yet staying deeply in touch. Not knowing in the sense of, not in the sense of ignorance. Not in the sense of, duh but not having any idea of what's going to come next. That each breath is mysterious. That we could die when one breath doesn't come. We're that close. One heartbeat. And we look at a breath which we take so much for granted, and we look out of nowhere. The experience of breathing happens. And there's an experience, and then it disappears completely. We have no sense left of the breath of five minutes ago, of two minutes ago, out of nowhere. So the, the intimacy of not knowing, the intimacy of this particular pilgrimage has to come out of this place of deep experience. So the first case of the Blue Cliff record, one of the um, several of the pivotal collections of Zen koans in our tradition, the first case of the Blue Cliff record is about Bodhidharma, our 
uh, spiritual progenitor, the highest meaning of the holy truths. And as in, in session where we've talked more about koans, we've broken this down. More. I'm, not, I'm going to just give you the, the quick, the quick uh, beginning of this koan. Uh, and it has a pointer. It has a, a, a kind of a poetic expression of the essence of the koan. And then it has the case, the story of the koan. And there's several other parts to it which I'm not going to deal with. So the pointer. When you see smoke on the other side of a mountain, you already know there's fire. When you see horns on the other side of a fence, right away you know there's an ox. To understand three when one is raised, to judge precisely at a glance, this is the everyday food and drink of a patch-robed monk. Getting to where he cuts off the myriad streams, he is free to arise in the east and sink in the west, to go against or to go with in any and all directions, free to give or free to take away. But say, just at such a time, whose actions are these? But here's the case. Emperor Wu of Liang asked the great master Bodhidharma, what is the meaning of the, hol of the holy truths? Bodhidharma said, empty, without holiness. The emperor said, who is facing me? Bodhidharma replied, I don't know. The emperor did not understand and after this, Bodhidharma crossed the Yangtze River and went to the kingdom of Wei. Not knowing is most intimate. It's said that this particular emperor, King Wu, was a, uh, had almost like King Asoka generations before him in India had been a violent and very brutal king who had ascended to his power because he had killed many, many people. And then out of regret and out of uh, his feeling of uh, worry of karmic retribution, worry of what's going to come to him and the, from all the violence that he had perpetuated, he then began, he had a, a kind of refor reformation or a awakening and began to support spiritual life and built lots of temples and ordained lots of monks and gave them food and had sutras translated. And so he said, yeah, well, you know, I'm pretty hot. I've done lots of good things here. What am I going to get for that? In a way, we often start off, we all do spiritual practice in exactly the same way. Oh, look at me, look what I've given up. Oh, look what I've done. Oh, look who I've helped. Oh, look what I've, look what I've, look what I've, look what I've. Expecting that, and of course, there will be some karma. There will be some karma unfolding. Of course. Everything we do has, an, has a, every action has a reaction, has an interaction. Of course. But it is the very doing of it itself that is the meaning. It is the very doing of our breath itself that is the meaning. It is the very doing of our breath itself. The path is the fruit, as they say in the Kagyu tradition. And in a way, the fruit, the fruit of our breath, the fruit of our practice, the fruit of all the good deeds we do, is the doing of them. One simple level of looking.
So Bodhidharma left the king, and again, that's a whole month of Tesha's right there talking about this particular koan. But we're going to slide through that too. In 1968, I went to the Zen Center of Rochester and became a staff person there, and I was there on the staff for about six years, 75. And Roshi Philip Kaplow was the teacher then. And Roshi Kaplow uh, was born in 1912, and he died in 2004. He was a reporter for the Nuremberg and the Tokyo War Crimes Trials after World War II. And after hearing these testimony after testimony after testimony, and hearing about the depravity of human behavior, and hearing about the depths of human suffering, A great doubt arose in him. What is the meaning of this life? What are we doing here? Is there any hope for humanity? A lot of people feel worried about climate change, or worried about you know, ISIS, or Boko Haram, or some of the other things that are happening. But it's the same, exactly the same thing. Samsara just keeps going around and around and around. And he heard about all of these terrible, 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 terrible things. And he said, what's the point? What is, what, is, um, what is significant? A deep angst arose in him. And in his 30s, in 1953, he left for Japan, studies in Buddhism. And he studied with a Dayan Harada Roshi, different Harada Roshi than we've uh, worked with. And in his Dharma Ehariyasthani Roshi, at age 53, he set up the Rochester Zen Center. Then he taught for 40 years. His angst at seeing the suffering of the world, his angst at seeing the depths of human depravity, is something that generation after generation after generation of people have witnessed. And something generation after generation after generation of people in our lineage have experienced and awoke in them what is the meaning of life? That all is going to fall apart. What is the meaning of life? If nothing is reliable, what is the meaning of life? If no matter how kind and good I am, people are still cruel, what is the meaning of life? If everything dies, and everyone dies, and everyone I love leaves, what is the meaning of life? And as you all know, there are the, the, the traditional uh, Tibetan teaching, there are the three levels of suffering. There's the suffering of pain, the suffering of, you know, we'll get sick. There's the suffering of Things that we love and cherish fall apart and disappear. And there's the, the suffering of impermanence. Nothing can be held on to, even our own deeply cherished experiences. So this particular question, 82 generations, what is the meaning of life? Who am I? What is my role? A little more shallow. In the universe. It's real. 
but he's true. Generation after generation, because our essential nature is always calling to us to see what is the foundation. There's a tanka in the tea area of Yamantaka. Yamantaka is drawn or painted as a dancing demon. And the, the part of the iconography is he stomps on everything that is impermanent. He stomps on everything that is unreal, leaving only the pure truth. So part of our legacy is this question. Part of our legacy is awakening to the deep aspiration for truth. Part of our legacy is generation after generation of people who have devoted themselves to that investigation and to teaching and helping others. The investigation may start off as a personal quest. I'm in so much pain, I must be free. But it can only end with the great teacher, with the bodhisattva vow. One of Roshi Kaplow's favorite sayings was that all the challenges, troubles, obstacles, difficulties, doubts, reservations, anger, and depression, and failure, all of our successes were just grist for the mill. For those of you who don't know, grist just means grain. Just means grain that's being ground up for food, flour. So Roshi Kaplow, who is one of our ancestors, would talk about Bodhidharma and the lineage in this way. And he, one of the things I remember very vividly was his teisho and his teaching about Bodhidharma. So from the Mumon Khan, there's another of the famous uh, koan collections, Bodhidharma and Peace of Mind. Bodhidharma sat facing the wall. The second ancestor who had been standing in the snow cut off his arm and said, your disciple's mind is not yet at peace. I beg you, my teacher, please give it peace. Bodhidharma said, bring the mind to me and I'll, let, I'll set it at rest. Second ancestor said, I have searched for the mind and it is finally unattainable. Bodhidharma said, I have thoroughly set it at rest for you. And again, just so you hear the words, I'll do the koan and the, the, the commentary in the poem. Uman's commentary, the broken-toothed old foreigner proudly came over a hundred thousand miles across the sea. That means Bodhidharma. This was as if he were raising waves where there was no wind. Toward his end, Bodhidharma could enlighten only one disciple, but even he was crippled. Uman's poem, coming from the west and directly pointing, this great affair was caused by the transmission. The troublemaker who created a stir in Zen circles is, after all, you. So, to really truly appreciate this koan and to appreciate our lineage, We have to have some feeling of what we co, the second ancestor, went through and what all of the 82 generations of teachers have gone through. The first noble observation of Buddhism 
is that there is dukkha. Whether we call it dukkha, we call it suffering or, or grating or friction or challenges or obstacles or problems. Everybody has them. Everybody in every generation. All human beings. And most people live small lives just doing their best to avoid, to mitigate these difficulties. To go with the flow and be unengaged, which is a kind of suffering itself. And as we know, there is the, uh, as Thoreau said, most ordinary people live lives of quiet desperation. Something is not right. Something is not right, and they become angry and fearful and lash out and all the things that we see happening all the time. Sometimes people find themselves in an impossible circumstance where there is no way out. Sometimes people find that they really want to eat and to have shelter and food. Sometimes people find that they're going to have a child. Sometimes people have this deep aspiration to, arouse, to, to penetrate into the heart of the matter. Some people see how much suffering there is in the world and want to find the root. If we had an earthquake, we were homeless, had no way out, of course we would do our best to have you know, food and find water. We have a water tank that lasts for a little while. And of course, we'd want to see all the people who are trying to do good and offer food and clothing. But when we are faced with the truth of the first noble observations, when we're faced with the truth of responsibilities for our family, child, community, an aspiration in some people arises. Healthy parents have an astral aspiration to raise healthy children. In the Dharma, there are many levels of aspiration. There is, of course, the aspiration just to be comfortable, to be relaxed. We all want that. But then there is also the aspiration to reduce, to relieve our crude forms of suffering. And by being ethical, by paying attention to karma, by right livelihood, it all reduces suffering, for sure. And there's the aspiration to learn to be kind, to help others, to feel grateful, which inherently feels good. And many people have their mission in life, helping others, because they then feel good from it, get some reward. The aspiration of the bodhisattva vow, though, is to save all beings, to save all beings from suffering. So given the ubiquity of dukkha, and given the aspiration to save all beings, 
we put those two together, there is a spiritual inquiry, a spiritual quest, a spiritual investigation that must be absolutely profound. And each one of our ancestors who made the vow to save all beings, each one of our ancestors who made the vow for liberation, each one of our ancestors in the Dharma made this profound level of investigation. If we make a vow, then of course the challenges to that vow immediately arise, as we've said many times. We make a vow, the obstacles to that vow, we invite them all to come. We vow to make a great dinner, and suddenly you have the obstacle of how do you turn the stove on, or how do you get the ingredients, and so on and so forth. If you make a small vow, you have small obstacles. If you make a great vow, you have great obstacles. If you make a vow to build a bridge across a river, you have lots of obstacles, material and resources, etc. If you make a vow to save all beings, you invite, you invite all sorts of obstacles, all sorts of challenges. And if you take the four bodhisattva vows seriously, beings are numberless, I vow to free them. Endless beings. Dharmas are inexhaustible. The truth is endless, endless. I vow to penetrate it. The obstacles are endless and ubiquitous. I vow to see, free to see beyond them. The Buddha's way is absolutely timeless and boundless. I vow to embody it. We make that kind of vow and take it seriously. It does something to our view of the life of our world. Hui Ko, the second ancestor in China, was a very mature, apparently, according to legend, was a mature practitioner, an adult person, person who had been teaching, a person of fearless honesty with himself. who looked at his own nature, who looked directly at his own heart and said, it's not at rest. Now, in this world, it's easy to fool people. Yogan used to say, you can sell the delusion at any price. You can't give the truth away. Abraham Lincoln said, you can fool some of the people some of the time, you can fool some of the people all the time, but you can't fool all of the people all the time, something like that. But you can fool most of the people, most of the time. There's a, a, an article one of our sons just sent me about the, the intention of the gaming industry is to addict people. And hallmark of a good game is we get addicted to it. It becomes very pleasurable and you just keep doing it over and over again. So he looked fearlessly at his own heart and was not satisfied with all the ordinary ways of trying to turn his mind away from his own deep unrest. 
And of course, there are lots of them. In this culture especially, where there are so many escapes, where we have so many different ways out, we feel unhappy and we can go watch a video, sing a song, take a dance, whatever. But when he had looked directly and fearlessly at his own heart and said, you know, all this stuff doesn't touch it. Whatever I try, it doesn't touch it. doesn't touch it. At that level, the aspiration for awakening, for knowing the timeless, boundless truth, for realizing what the Buddha promised, liberation, freedom, at that level, that aspiration is awoken. I'm still suffering. He had this fearless honesty, as had to have had all of the previous teachers. Had to have a fearless honesty with themselves. Otherwise, they would not have been genuine. Otherwise, their teaching could have written it down and sent it off. The essence of the great lineage tradition that we are a part of is this fearless honesty, genuineness, and doing our very best to look what is truly liberating. So we go after years of practice with this fearless honesty in his heart goes to see Bodhidharma. And Bodhidharma ignores him. Doesn't say hello. And he goes to see him apparently repeatedly. And he just, Bodhidharma is just sitting there. Now, that in itself is an interesting, a whole series of koans, a whole series of que questions of why would Bodhidharma just sit there? What was his state of mind? What was he doing? Just sitting there breathing, apparently for nine years, looking into breath? And I guarantee if he was looking into it, like moving a glass of water back and forth, probably wasn't very alive. By that time, he would have become pretty numb. So somehow he was sitting there alert, alive, responsive. And this person with a genuine heart comes. And it's interesting, why would somebody keep coming back? We don't even get greeted. Why would we go continue to show up? There must have been some deep karmic connection there. He must have had some sense of the importance of this particular relationship. Obviously, it was nothing that came from Bodhidharma's side. And he comes, and he stands, 
Buddha Dharma ignores it. He stands. Buddha Dharma ignores it. Now, if we look at the history of uh, spiritual training, not just Zen Buddhist training, but the history of spiritual training, especially at the beginning of traditions, they are not noted for uh, luxurious conditions. Maybe after something is really uh, well established and there's big cathedrals and there's lots of money flowing through, the conditions become very plush. But certainly in the, the monasteries in China and in Japan, for sure, the beggars in India, the conditions were pretty, pretty sparse. No heat, poor food, lots of work, little sleep. In those cultures of Japan and China in those days, hitting was common. No recognition, perhaps long hours of study. So even to practice at all under those kind of conditions, you must have had some deep, deep motivation. And so he brings this deep motivation to his encounter with Bodhidharma. Bodhidharma ignores him. We can all look at different conditions. We can all say that, oh yes, if we, if we had these tough conditions, that'd be real training. You know, if we just didn't sleep or if we just cut our food in half or whatever. But the real training is when we are are fixed views are taken away, then what? The things that we believe in are taken away, then what? Things that we hope and depend on are snatched away, then what? And we often idealize, you know, we think, oh, Bodhidharma, a great master, you know, sitting in a cave, I'll go find a cave, I'll go find a great master sitting in a cave, and I'll go sit in the cave myself, and I'll, I'll sit in the cave, and I'll have somebody bring me a, you know, a cup of rice every couple of days, and I'll have a little bit of water, and I will be in deep samadhi, deep concentration all the time, and obviously before you know it, I'll be a boundless mind and pure awakened to the true nature of all things. One of the people, one of the teachers who came here used to fantasize about going off into a cave in the Himalayas, and thinking that would, that would be where the apex of practice was. That would be the pure practice. He finally would become one with the great yogic masters of the Himalayas. And he was in a condition and a situation. He was able to do that with the blessings of the Rinpoche. And he went up there. He said he was absolutely miserable. All he, all he got was insects and cold and poor food. And he said it was, it was, it was a place of death, not a place of practice. So we keep, you know, our tendency is to look outward at something else and think, oh, that'll do it for me. Oh, that'll do it for me. Oh, that teacher will do it for me. Oh, that place will do it for me. Oh, that condition will do it for me. Oh, that situation. When we pay, what it, we have to do is have this fearless inquiry into the genuineness of our own heart and to bring that to wherever we go, to bring that to wherever we stand, to bring that to this moment, to bring that to whatever we meet. The real training happens when we bring our own genuine 
nature. Right where we stand. And then we find we don't get what we expect. And we still keep coming forward. So Ricoh obviously would have expected a great teacher to see this person and think, ooh, you're pretty, pretty special, you know, teacher, mature, etc. He ignored him. He didn't get what he expected. But thinking, what's he looking for? We're not looking for our expectations. Our expectations are very often shallow and superficial. Our expectations are see me, look at me, I'm cool, you know. We call it a stronger urgency. So one night he came, Bodhidharma ignored him, and it started snowing. And he stood, he stood, and he stood. And he stood in the cold, in the dark, the snow is. So what was the state of mind of somebody like that? Why in the world would somebody do that? There's a story about uh, Father um, Arseny. Arseny. Father Arseny was a Russian Orthodox priest that Stalin had sent to the gulag. And one winter, a guard took dislike for him and falsely accused him of something. He was sentenced to be in a galvanized steel box in the winter in Russia, and it was 22 degrees below Fahrenheit. And he should have died in four or five hours, frozen to death. But he was a person of deep faith, deep faith, really an enormously inspirational person. And he began praying. And he began praying not for himself, oh, may I survive this, may I survive this, may I survive this, but for all the people in the, in the camp, for the guards, and the people he felt responsible for that he left. Or there was another prisoner with him for him. And he prayed, and in the Orthodox tradition, you stand. You stand for hours. So he was standing in this steel box in the middle of winter, 22 degrees below Fahrenheit, praying with all of his heart. And two days later, they opened the steel door, thinking he'd be frozen to death. And he was still alive and warm. That kind of effort is not an effort of the will. That kind of concentration, that kind of practice must come from deep faith. Deep faith and intense concentration. In a way, exactly like people can bring to the breath, deep faith, intense concentration, total genuineness, expecting nothing. His body was damaged, but his spirit was whole. So we co-stood all night in the snow. Not just a matter of, I will bear this, I will get through this. 
I will get my reward. Probably. <laughs> Probably because there was nothing else he could do. Probably because all of his outs, all of his attempts to escape were used up. He was totally consumed by this question. Again, many people have done many things on the outside. Asleep, fasting, standing. One, one famous guy who decided he was going to stand on top of a tower until his legs fell off. And he stood on the top of a tower until his legs um, got uh, inflamed and had necrosis, and then he died of gangrene. People do all sorts of things, thinking that the thing is going to do it for them. The place is going to do it for them. When really it is the state of mind, the aspiration of our own hearts, is the only thing that is important. And so in our, we are very fortunate in 82 generations of people, in all of their idiosyncrasies, in all of their inadequacies, in all of their brokenness, in all of their humanness, this aspiration for awakening was passed generation after generation. I don't know whether it was ever resolved. How could you know that? But the aspiration for awakening passed on generation after generation after generation. That's the lineage that we inherit. This dark place is an essential part of the spiritual path, one way or another. Hakuman Zenji, actually this is about doing it from the outside still. Hakuman Zenji told a business person one time, Give up all your worldly affairs. Devote yourself to the Dharma. And the business person then gave, you know, gave away all of the stuff he owned. He ended up being sick, impoverished, and he was very bitter. He felt Hakuman had betrayed him. So if we do it from the outside, it doesn't work. We have to do it from the inside. There are uh, gurus in India who held their arm up for 20 years as a sign of their faith. I don't know what effect that had on their state of mind. It didn't help their arm any, I know that. So here we are, right here, inheriting this aspiration for awakening. Otherwise, we would not be here. Here we are, right here, with this breath. Here we are, right here, this breath coming out of nowhere. This breath mysteriously moving through us. We have nothing whatsoever to do with it. This breath that is mysteriously functioning through us. 
frankly, whether we deserve it or not, it's not even important. This breath, that which each person is completely, wholly equipped with. Each person has this dynamic life energy, this movement, this awareness. It's not a thing. It can't be found. And yet, it is our very being. And nobody is missing it. Nobody is defective. Nobody say it's like raising your foot and not missing the earth when you place it down. We can't miss our own nature. All that is required is just like our ancestral spiritual progenitors is the genuineness of our own being and the aspiration to really look deeply and see. So Huiko sat up all night. He gave up all clinging, all hope. One of the Christian traditions says, if you have not spent sleepless nights in suffering and tears and do not know the experience of being unable to swallow, piece of bread. The grace of God will never reach you. Roshi Kaplow used to say, who went through great difficulties in training, very great difficulties, used to say, until one has been through the winter that bites into your bones, how can plum blossoms regale you with their piercing fragrance? All teachers, to one degree or another, some much more dramatically, some go through doubt, despair, darkness, go through the long night. All these teachers must have cried buckets. Akuman Zenji in the 17th century, he said, I felt as if I were sitting in an ice cave 10,000 miles thick. I myself shall never forget the spiritual struggle I had in sheer darkness for nearly three years. I would declare that this is the most important and valuable in Zen training. This experience of the dark night going through it wholeheartedly with one's own being, whole being. Of course, if we encounter these states, if we're in, in these states and we don't know what's going to happen, and we don't have teachers that keep saying, keep going, keep going, keep looking, keep looking, don't get caught, then, of course, we slide into self-pity. We can slide into self-pity. In the long night, the spiritual purging that happens becomes just ordinary depression. Self-pity turns the extraordinary into the mundane, mundane. And just like if we happen to be somebody who is fortunate and has ecstatic states, and has bright states, and has a different 
path in life has a different, and there certainly are people like that. If they, if self-aggrandizement becomes the, they grab a hold of that and they, oh, I'm cool, then that too is just like self-pity. And it takes what is extraordinary and brings it down to what is pitiable. So after this long night, Huiko is standing there in the snow. Bodhidharma finally looks at him and says, you've been standing here for a long time. What do you want? Huiko says, the disciple's mind is not at rest. I beg you, please give it peace. So we can all say those words. We all have the capacity to say those words. But it is the heart, it is the endless searching, it is the looking that goes behind them. It is the spirit out of which they come. I have endlessly, completely, thoroughly searched. We often have done the practice here of scanning the body, looking for the self, finding that it's unfindable. The standard practice, the standard uh, Tibetan practice of emptiness of self. But then we all come up and say, well, I can't find a self. And we're, you know, well, that didn't work. Look at me. That's not quite what he's talking about here. To profoundly look and see that the very one who is seeing, to profoundly look and see that the very eye that sees is not a thing, does not belong to us. As my master Eckhart said, the eye with which I see God is the eye with which God sees me. Awareness itself has no boundary. The Bodhidharma says, show it to me. There's lots of answers to that question. Show it to me. Rico says, I have searched to the bottom of my being. I can't find what's suffering. Bodhidharma says, there, I've set it at peace. What's set it at peace is I can't find anyone suffering. That's the important point here. We come back to the breath, back to the session. We are the inheritors of 82 generations of people looking for the truth. And the only place we can actually look for what is true is right here, right now, with this eye. And the only place we can look for it is in our direct experience, because there is nothing but our direct experience. And so we keep saying, drop the story about it. Look directly at your own breath, at your own heart. Watch the mysterious movement of life energy. Let go of all hope that you're going to get something else, that you're going to get a big reward 
You can go out and write books. Drop all hope and look directly at what is. And in this way, this practice of breath, this practice of submerging ourselves in breath, becomes a profound, profound entrance gate. beyond the rational mind. And it is this touching of our truest nature beyond the rational mind that we all long for. We all have the equipment for. We all have the capacity to see. So please, whatever comes up is just grist for the mill. Don't get caught by the story. Just stop. And continue over and over this intimate investigation of your own being. And inherit the mind. Inherit the realization. Inherit the awareness that all of these generations of teachers cultivated. Our mind, the mind of the Buddha, the mind of the ancestors, we all walk hand in hand. We all see with the same eyes. Know them face to face.